Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode three of The Edric Show. I am your host, Edric Jerome. We want to thank you for tuning in to episode three. Uh, always, please, we are offering intelligent conversation with interesting people. Uh, we aim to bring you that on every single episode. Please hit the subscribe button on our YouTube channel as we grow this thing from the ground up. Uh, episode three, we're very happy to be here. Uh, so please subscribe to our YouTube channel. You can also catch us on Instagram at Edric Show. And The Edric Show is our Facebook channel. Uh, very, very excited to have uh, our guest today for episode three, Abra Lee. Uh, just a remarkable, remarkable story that we'll get into. Uh, Abra is an author. She's a lecturer. She is a founder of Conquer the Soil, which is a community that combines history, art, fashion, and culture to raise awareness of ornamental horticulture. She is a horticulturalist. Uh, she has had an 18-year career um, as a municipal arborist, an extension agent, an airport landscape manager uh, for two very large international airports. She's a graduate of Auburn University, the College of Agriculture, and an alumna of Longwood Gardens Society of Fellows, a prestigious global network of public horticulture professionals. Abra, welcome to The Edric Show. Thank you so much for having me, Edric. And you're reading that. And at first I was thinking, wow, I sound like I got a great accomplishment. And then I thought, <laughs> I, I just sound old at this point. <laughs> no, you have oh my quite, gosh. A bit, quite a bit that we'll get into. And uh, not to mention, <laughs> I didn't even get into, you have a book coming out. Uh, I do. You know, so we'll get to all of that because there's so much to tell with, with your story and, and the great work that you're doing. So um, let's start out at the beginning, uh, your formative years, uh, you grew up, is it, what, did you grow up in Atlanta or in the South? Tell me about where you, where you I, began. I did, Edric. I am a hardcore Southerner. <laughs> I grew up in Atlanta and on the weekends, my family would go down to Barnesville, Georgia, where my mother is from. It's an hour South of Atlanta and it's a rural town called, uh, Barnesville, as I mentioned in dirt road country. So sure. my mom's family had a farm there with the cows, the chickens, the smokehouse in the back the lake and that's where we would spend our weekends growing up so it was beautiful and so where did the love of horticulture and especially as it translates into your college career uh where did that come from how did you stumble across this obviously your calling yeah i didn't and i will say i didn't go to auburn with the intention of majoring in horticulture i was in probably heading to my junior year or at least at the end of my sophomore year when um I decided that was going to be my major and that was really by chance. But looking back, growing up, going down to Barnesville, just being in that free open space, you know, beautiful um, rural garden with definitely the African-American vernacular features like the yard art. Um, and then also I thought about this as I got older, when I was growing up, my dad was director of parks for city of Atlanta and Looking back, I'm sure that had an impact on me, but it was something I looked at it more as that, well, that's a, a career an adult does. I never saw myself in it as a child. So when I decided finally I was going to major in horticulture, my parents were very supportive because my mom had grown up on a farm and my dad had been the first black director of parks for the city of Atlanta. So they were with it. And I was very, very lucky that they were supportive. Um, maybe give us a little bit of an overview of just what is horticulture and um, you know, specifically, people think the soil and they think growing crops, but there's a distinct difference between horticulture and farming. So maybe you can touch a little bit on that. There is. And if people can think of it in this way, 
agriculture is the umbrella that everything's under. Okay. So horticulture is under agriculture, floriculture. Um, I would even say, some people may argue this, but I would even say things like botany. But then when you look at the School of Agriculture, um, and I'm going to use Albert as an example, you got the poultry science folks there. You got the cattle farmers there. So if agriculture is our umbrella, horticulture is a, uh, a spinoff of that that is specifically focused on the art and science of plants. And most people do uh, absolutely get into what we call the productive side of horticulture, which is the nursery men and the nursery women or the nursery people. And they're growing the plants, the edible crops, or you can be growing what's called the ornamental crops. And that's the side of horticulture I'm in, meaning the focus is really beauty and aesthetics and creating this picture, this piece of art through the plants and not necessarily as focused on um, making something that you can eat. We, and we love that part too, but if we're going to combine those things, it's got to be pretty. Like that's the real focus in ornamental horticulture. Um, going back quickly to your, your career at Auburn, you have a pretty unique, and I guess in some respects, not so unique experience in college, but tell us about your, your experience at Auburn University and, and how you overcame some obstacles. Oh, for sure. My experience at Auburn was, it was, Looking back as well, I thought about this deeply um, as I've been asked about it quite a bit, and it was culture shock. So I'm coming from Atlanta, honestly, the state of Georgia, where the, po the Atlanta uh, population of Black people is over 50%, and the state of Georgia is at 30%. So I'm just used to seeing myself, as I told you, my dad's position in parks. And so I grew up around Black landscape architects, Black arborists, Black you know, superintendents of horticulture and places, and to go to Auburn and be the only one, literally the only black person in the College of Agriculture, that was shocking to me. And it was also, it was depressing because I had never been exposed to that. I was just so used to representation. So, but it also was a familiarity and I will give my mom's family credit for that because I was not uncomfortable being in the agriculture school around um, so many people from rural areas that felt natural. It was just this kind of isolation I felt. And it, I, I mean, I know y'all are familiar with the South in California, but it can kind of sometimes be hard for people to understand that even up until the 90s, 2000s, things were very much still black and white. Mm -hmm. And that was something that I struggled with at Auburn. And um, even though I rolled in horticulture, I ended up struggling and I failed out. And I ended up going back and finishing my degree in horticulture. Um, I took off a semester for academic suspension. However, that really showed me that it, it's okay to fail. It was no big deal. I, I fail. It's almost, it's what I tell the kids now, look, if you're, if you're not the A student and everyone isn't, just finish, just literally just finish it and you're going to be fine. And that was really the biggest lesson for me there. Just, just finish the job and you're going to be okay moving forward. So, um, and it's allowed me, I feel like to take risk in my careers that I wouldn't have taken if I had just been this perfect student um, at Auburn. So I did struggle, but I made it out. What they say, it's not your setback, it's your comeback. And I had a good comeback. Right. Yeah. Cool. Um, let's talk now. So you, you finished Auburn and how do you start your career in horticulture? Because ultimately you were responsible. You had a lot of responsibility uh, at a municipal level, at an international airport level at a young age. So how did that transition happen and how did you get into that world and, and be able to get that much responsibility um, pretty quickly? 
to, to Auburn's credit, they really did prepare me for a well-rounded career in horticulture. It was an exceptional um, ag and horticulture program down there. And right out of school, I worked in the commercial landscape business for a family company here in Georgia. It was called Russell Landscape Group. So commercial landscape means that you're doing work on those commercial properties. So uh, apartment complexes or malls or whatever. And I realized because it was a family company, I wasn't going to but move up but so far. And so I started looking at other options and I ended up applying for a job um, with the city of Atlanta Department of Parks as a municipal arborist. So that was my first, I think kind of my first big break. And then while I was an arborist in the parks department, I was at a job fair. We were hiring foresters and the airport, Hartsfield-Jackson Atlanta International Airport happened to be there. And they were looking for a director of horticulture, a landscape superintendent for their program. And again, I failed. I didn't know any difference. So I, so why not me? And so I applied for that job. And I will say back to the presence and representation of your people, I would not have got that job if the people in that room were not decision makers that looked like me. I deeply believe that that had a real effect on them willing to take a, and it wasn't even a risk because I was prepared for the job, but for them to hire me. Um, and I deeply think that's because Black people were the decision makers at the airport at the time. And, and that job entailed um, just a massive, like I said, amount of responsibility. And um, maybe talk to us about the, the, I guess, goals and aims of, a, of a, a horticultural perspective like that for that large of a scale versus someone who's tending in their backyard or have gardens or garden clubs. I mean, there, there's the level of scale had to be, you know, quite a bit. It, it is. And... Fortunately, the airport, or I would probably say most airport horticulture programs are broken into two parts. There's the um, the outer area. So the perimeter is what the public sees. It's going to be the first thing you see, probably landing, the last thing you remember. And then the runways, the part that's with inside of the privacy fence, that's another level of horticulture. So the people that do the runways usually are very well versed in what we call turf grass management. They just really understand grasses and keeping them low and things like that. My job was the perimeter. Mm. And the biggest difference with horticulture at airports is that you are trying to not attract wildlife. So in your own yard, you're fine with the birds coming in and, it, you know, a cute little deer every now and then. But at an airport, birds and planes don't mix. So you have to be very conscious of not installing these ornamental plants that are going to attract birds. And what the, the term that we use in airports is that you want the least palatable uh, plant there. So the least palatable plant for the wildlife. Um, and another big focus with airports is people are going to be viewing what you do from high up. So you're really you're using these really bright, bold colors. Um, so hot pinks, bright orange, yellows, and then also what we call bold texture. So bigger leaved uh, plants or bigger bloom plants that really, really stand out. Um, and then there's some areas that you may use um, the smaller plants. And I'll give you an example. So right there, the containers coming out of the airport, sometimes getting off a flight, people just need peace and to relax. So you might use your finer texture. So smaller leaves, colors that are more pastels, more calming. And that's at least that's the way that we operated at the airport when I was there. I was the first person in the job. So I kind of set those rules. But I tried to really think about what it felt like to be a traveler. And that was what I use as my North Star. Hmm. Um, now, I want to 
transition a little bit to the present. Um, and, and there's so much to talk to you about. I wanna, I'm going to be jumping all over the place. So I'm going to tell you that now. We're going to be all okay. over the place. So let me go now because um, you, you, are, you have a book coming out. And I want to make sure we get to that you know, immediately. So your book, Conquer the Soil, um, and it's based, on I think, on some of your lectures and some of the research you've been doing over the years, uh, because you have this deep knowledge of history of um, African-American society and horticulture and the garden clubs and just the, the importance and overlooked aspect of the contributions of African-Americans. So maybe talk to us about, you know, your research and the book and how you're tying all this um, remarkable story together uh, to educate the masses. The research for the book Conquer the Soil began back in 2010, uh, but I, at the time I wasn't looking at it for a book. I was just looking at it because even though I told you I grew up seeing um, black representation and ornamental horticulture, by the time I really got the job and it was just me, and I, I mean that it was just me, and I really didn't see other people in leadership positions um, doing the kind of work I was doing. And so my mom, who is a retired history educator and one of my garden mentors, a gentleman named Ryan Ganey, were having a talk with me. Uh, we were sitting at Ryan's house and he said, you know, you really need to know your, your garden history because I had this airport job and I still had a level of imposter syndrome because as you said, I was really young. I think I was 27, 28 when I got that job. And when they were explaining to me to know my history, I was thinking, okay, start with the hanging gardens of Babylon and then go forward through Spain and Moroccan landscape and how all that ties together. But what was really being told to me was know your history, know what black people did uh, before you in ornamental horticulture. And it just never occurred to me like that. And my mom said, you know, when I grew up, black men were the gardeners at these estate homes. So I was like, of course they were, black people were. And it led me down a road to just really start doing research and seeing how it was black women in the South that once the Civil War was over, they went back to those abandoned Annabella mansions and saved those heirloom plants, those heirloom roses, those heirloom perennials. Um, it was our people who uh, did things like landscape architecture and had these programs that, of course, places like Hampton, Tuskegee, um, North Carolina A&T. And so there's this idea that we're only well-versed people when it comes to growing food or farming. And that's just simply not true. We have a legacy of not only being landscape architects, floriculturists, there were black women that owned their own nurseries, five acre nurseries and greenhouses. And it wasn't just one, there were many of these women all throughout the country. So I think it's just very important for especially children coming up now to know their history in horticulture and know that, for lack of better words, they really ain't new to this. They true to this. This is what they do. This is, this is why their people were brought over in bondage across the Atlantic because they were exceptional cultivators of the soil. So it is really within their spirit and their heart to do this work and do it at a top tier level. I want to point to a couple of the women that you highlight in some of your lectures, and I know you've uh, some of the folks you'll be writing about your book, um, because you you touched on it. There's a level of expertise. There's a level of business savvy, um, especially back in the day, you know, when African-Americans didn't have a lot of opportunities, but you had these sound, strategic thinking business women doing their thing, as you said. So talk to us about a couple. I'm going to mention uh, maybe Bessie Weaver. Give me, tell us a little bit about Bessie Weaver. Bessie Weaver, to me, they're all queens. So I don't care who you mentioned. I could just talk about them all day. Bessie Weaver was the first black florist west of the Mississippi. So she is from uh, what uh, 
Wathena, Kansas, W-A-T-H-E-N-A. So she is from the country of Kansas too, the country area. And she ends up marrying, moving to Kansas City. And she opens up a, a floral shop there. And she and her husband, a gentleman named Fortune Weaver, are very active in the black community. Her husband is a man that had an automobile school in Kansas City. And what's really impressive about Bessie Weaver is that she wanted other black women to open up this business. And she was very real about how she started in floriculture, how she saved her money from washing clothes. And when she did that, she bought geraniums, she propagated, and then she went on to grow more plants and open up a florist shop. And she also taught, it, called, it was called the, the Weaver School of the Arts. So she taught other women to how to have a floriculture business and very civically engaged, civically active woman. So even in the early 1900s, I want to say 1915 or 1910, um, I, I have one of those dates wrong. She is in Boston at the, what was then called the Negro League Convention, uh, Booker T. Washington is there, and she's speaking. She's one of the speakers on the program that day, and she's speaking to other Black women and encouraging them to launch this type of business. So a woman that wasn't just, it only focused on flowers, she was focused on other women having their own economic means to support themselves, and that is why she is a queen in my eyes. And she went on, I, I don't want to um, gloss over this part, Edric. Sure, sure. She went on to have a 50-year career in horticulture. And she went through real-life things. So at one point, her business burned to the ground in a fire. Her mother was also uh, lost and killed in that fire, uh, unfortunately. However, she rebuilt that. And when Black people got together to form their own florist association, they known, they named, uh, rather, Bessie Weaver, the mother of that association, which we know that is a big deal to be a mama of a church or anything right. in a black community. Right. So, I mean, she's just a boss. Let's just say she is a B-O-S-S boss all the way. And I'm glad you, you're bringing this story to light because, um, you know, a couple of months back, maybe even last year, there was a Netflix series on, um, you know, uh, Madam C.J. Walker, another prominent, uh, large-scale African-American uh, woman who was just for lack of a better word, just doing business, just taking care of business and, and, and growing and, and becoming this corporate entity. Um, but you have so many stories like this uh, in the world of horticulture that people just aren't aware of. Um, so as you tell these stories, do you continue to be surprised about some of the things you're, you're discovering in your research and um, some of the things you go, wow, I had no idea, you know, and, and obviously you have curious nature because you're in it and, and you just like asking questions. So tell us about some of the things that are, that, that you're coming across that you're like, man, I had no idea that this was out there. There is so many things and um, just fun, neat, cool things. So for instance, there is a gentleman um, named A.F. Crawford, who was, I believe, the first floriculture teacher at Tuskegee. And this is a man that came from the South, moved up to Connecticut, opened up his own greenhouses. And I'm not talking about one or two. I'm talking about 17. Wow. But long story short, Edric, this man was a champion croquet player and he had his croquet uh i guess they call it a croquet field i'm and i'm down here in atlanta i don't think <laughs> about croquet tournaments and being at this elite level and winning championships so i thought that that was such a fun thing because you start to peek into their real life and what they did and um of course they worked but they also like us they they did fun things even though they're living in the height of Jim Crow, right? The height of the civil rights movement. Um, and then I think of another person, a gentleman named um, uh, William Charles Costello, who was an entomological artist. 
for Ohio State University. So he drew those beautiful pictures that you see of insects. And so, uh, for instance, to your audience, uh, Lepidoptera is the butterfly family. So he would draw the parts and pieces and the whole um, shape of the butterfly so the students can study. And he started off his career as a magician and had a whole traveling uh, group with him and was the leader of this. And then when also actually his uh, caravan caught on fire. And so he stopped being a magician, but he was always an artist. And he was discovered through one of those work progress association programs in Columbus, Ohio, when a professor came by, saw his work and hired him to work at the school. Um, and then I was people, oh, the same gentleman, I think he played 12 instruments. So it was just incredible to see not just the extraordinary work they did in horticulture or agriculture, just the extraordinary lives they led in their personal life. And I can absolutely tell there was no such thing as social media because how were they doing all these things? They, right. It was like no distractions. They were focused. Right. Um, in the title of your book, Conquer the Soil, um, tell us where that title came from. You know, what's the meaning behind it? And uh, particularly around the emphasis of soil, because to me that conjures up ownership, property, uh, you know, land rights, uh, even to this day, you know, I'm here in the Bay Area and, you know, and we're going to talk about hip hop a little bit, too. Um, but, you know, my E40 favorite. Is, yeah. <laughs> you know, E-40 is a Bay Area icon and he's For real. talking about soil, owning the soil. So from E-40 to where you title your book come from, tell us about the, the concept of conquer the soil and what that means. It, the, the concept of conquer the soil, those words, I could never have thought to say that together. So I own I don't um, I'm not that eloquent with my words. But who is was Dr. W.E.B. Du Bois. And in his book, The Soul of Black Folk, he there's a part of that book in one of the chapters. And he talks about the, the three gifts that the enslaved Africans brought to the Americas. And there was the gift of uh, story and song, the gift of spirit. And their third gift was their gift of strength and brawn. And that was the Africans' ability to conquer the soil. So he knew. He was the one that was very clear very early on that we're brought here anyway because of our agricultural talents. We are the best agrarians in the world. We are the best fishermen in the world. And so that is what he was referencing when he was talking about our ability to conquer the soil. And I absolutely do believe um, that not only did he see that, he recognized that he knew that it was necessary for a path forward. And I know people always associate him with the talent intent with the elite, the intellects of the black world and as a rival of a Booker T. Washington. However, he never negated the ability of what black people could do with the land. Um, and you bring up E-40 in the Bay Area and I'm so excited to talk to you, but I also, it's like, this is the, the, the Bay Area people. Y'all are just such a center and just a, a beautiful light of black history in America. So it's just a joy to, to hear your perspective on that because I certainly have a huge, huge respect for the Bay Area, California, and their contributions to the Black landscape of America. So just thank y'all for being the coolest of us all, really, um, truly. I, I've, you know, I, now, ironically, I was actually born in Augusta, Georgia, believe it or not. Wow! Um, but my dad was in the military, and so okay. we moved to California when I was like nine months old. So I don't, okay. I, don't I didn't grow up in, but, you know, I, but I do have that Southern sensibility because every year we would go back to Arkansas to see my grandparents and things like that. So when you were talking about the dirt roads and, you know, I, that, I definitely relate to that. And I think there's a, a lot of that cross-cultural connection because of the great migration and African-Americans yes. coming from the South and going to the West and, you know, during the World War II years or going for the industrial age. So 
um, you know, a lot of this history and a lot of the things that you're talking about, um, I think people really don't understand just how connected we truly are and how these stories are our stories. And uh, even the entrepreneurship that you're talking about, you know, a lot of uh, the folks that you're mentioning and are going to be into stories in your book, um, just a tremendous emphasis on being entrepreneurs and business people and being able to galvanize resources and um, just the, 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 it's just an amazing, amazing amount of work and research that you're doing. And so uh, the book comes out in September, correct? September of this year? It's September, actually September, 2022. 2022. 2022. Yes. 2022. Mm-hmm. And it's called Conquer the Soil. And hopefully we'll have you back on when the book comes out. Oh, I love that. More detail into that. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit because uh, I was watching and doing research on you and a lot of your lectures, and you had some interesting takes on George Washington Carver uh, and just what, you know, some of the myths around George Washington Carver and maybe some of the things that we don't know about him. So can you shed some light, tell our listeners a little bit about your view of George Washington Carver and maybe just how critically important this man was to American history and not just African-American history? Absolutely. George Washington Carver is somebody that really, he is in a league of his own, uh, truly. And one of the things that really surprised me about him, I didn't know that he was an artist and he, he went to school to be an artist and um, he ended up uh, getting rejected from the college that um, it was a, a college in the Midwest, uh, it rejected him when they found out he was black. And so he ends up going back to school. And in this point, he decides to major in agriculture because he wants to help his people. And I feel like the the mainstream story we're taught as children growing up, probably up until now, recently, the past two years, is just him being the peanut man. And that's just his thing. But this is a man that took the different colors of clay out the ground at Tuskegee and extracted the pigments of those clays and created paint so these students could paint the walls in their school. This is a man that absolutely saved the economy, not just of the South, the economy of America with the peanuts. So it's not that he's just some inventor and casually doing things. He is ensuring that the whole country does not collapse. And then also a a beautiful story I read about him. And this is one of those moments where, remember I told you I started this research 10 years ago. I'm just hanging out at my mama's house and she said, Abra, I want to show you something. And there was a book. And if one of my life goals is to remember the name of this book or to find it again. And if I see it in our house, I'm going to grab it. But my parents, tens of thousands of books in their house. I'm not even kidding. But there was a story in the book. And it was an old book. And what it said was that Auburn, my alma mater, used to sneak George Washington Carver, Dr. Carver, in at night to teach the professors there. And I 1,000% believe that because your audience may not know this, but Auburn and Tuskegee are on the same road. It's just one is 20 miles, 20 country miles down the road, and you essentially make a right. So, of course, they were sneaking this man in to Auburn, which is the PWI, the predominantly white institution, Mm -hmm. my school, Mm -hmm. from this HBCU because he was the most brilliant botanist, agriculturist, horticulturist, really in the world at that time. So those are the type of things. I think that we just, we know that he was a great person, but I don't think that we can ever fully wrap our brain around how great he was, how he turned down a six-figure salary. I believe it was from Henry Ford or the Carnegie's, one of those really big elite families that wanted him to come and do work. And he said, no, I'd rather stay here in Alabama because he knew his work was helping the community. How he never patented any of his inventions because he wanted them available to everyone. It wasn't about the money for him. So um, 
this man, he deserves his own Black History Month. He really does. Just amazing, amazing work. And, and thank you for, for bringing a lot of that to light because, um, you know, we, we need these stories now more than ever. You know, we need to have that connection between the, the, the young folks and older folks of today in terms of, you know, where you came from and what, what, tr what it truly means to be African-American in this country over the, over the generations. So, so thank you so much. I wanted to just touch briefly on uh, George Washington Carver. I want to go back now. I told you I'm all over the place. I want to go back to your Longwood Gardens experience and your leadership in public horticulture fellowship, because that's a big deal. And so tell us how that came about, um, what, what it's all about, and, and just what you've gained from it. And more importantly, what have they gained from you? Wow. Um, the, the leadership in public horticulture, excuse me, I'm going to grab a sip of water. Of course, of course. The Leadership in Public Horticulture Fellowship um, at Longwood Gardens is a program where at that point in your career, they're preparing you to be a leader in the world of public horticulture. So that means cultural institutions such as um, public gardens. It could be a museum with a garden. It could be an arboretum. So that's what I mean by cultural institutions. And the type of things that we learned in that fellowship in Longwood Gardens is located in Kennett Square, Pennsylvania. It is what's called the Brandywine Valley of Pennsylvania, a beautiful area, pretty much horse country up there, just horse farms. And uh, it was founded by Pierre DuPont. It is one of the great gardens of the world, and it is stunning if you ever get to visit. And the beautiful thing about that program was really breaking down what it took to be a leader in the world today. So your interaction with boards, how to create a board, how to establish a culture when a culture is already established at an organization and you have to come in and make things better. Um, things that really do matter, having a stylist, they even brought that in for us to know what the colors were best for you. What was your best style? We went to Northwestern and studied nonprofit um, finance work. We went to Georgetown and studied negotiation. We went to the University of Michigan um, at Ann Arbor and studied strategic leadership. So Longwood, it was a 13-month fellowship, and then part of it at Longwood was a field placement. So I spent, I was supposed to spend nine weeks there, but uh, the pandemic cut that short. I spent six weeks working at Chateau Villandry in the Loire Valley of France. So this is the Valley of the Castles there, and uh, did a lot of historic research at that castle. And it was just an incredible experience because it really, it shows you that there's levels to the game. And honestly, there's levels to life. Mm -hmm. And when someone takes the middleman away from you and they just expose you to the top and, and every you have access to whatever you want. So if I want to call the head of Dunedin Botanical Garden in Dunedin, New Zealand, I can do that. And they're going to pick up the phone and they're going to respond. That's just that's a great power and a great responsibility that you have. And I don't think that enough of us and by us, I mean, black people mm -hmm. know how accessible that is. No how so many things really are just these casual relationships. And I know that we hear networking, but it really is building real friendships and alliances throughout the world. And to just before Longwood, Edric, my range was the Southeast. I was Georgia, Alabama girl all the way. And, and those were the range of my connections. When I came back from Longwood, people in Atlanta now saw that my Rolodex had changed, my access had changed. I could get in touch directly with people at the Royal, Royal Horticulture Society. I could get in touch directly at, with uh, people at 
by lowly uh, home and gardens out there in Woodside, California. So it just it just showed me what was possible in a real way that I I think I thought, well, the airport thing is you can't go any further than this. And then I said, oh, my gosh, you can go way further. You know, I know people that own castles now. That's crazy to me that I like no Europeans that own castles that invite me to come have dinner at them. And um, I hope that answered your question. Yeah, absolutely. But absolutely. it's just something that I want our people to know. So I knew that when I got this fellowship, I was going to come back and tell everybody. And even in the fellowship, they're putting you up in this beautiful mansion. I mean, and it's you, the, it's a program where you're working and living with the people you work with. So in my case, it was six women that were chosen. But the, the things that we learn, the access that becomes available to you, and then also leaving um, Longwood, because the pandemic had happened in real time, it wasn't just easy for me to go out and get a, a, a job or employment in a public garden, but they had taught me enough skills where I was able to flip that into my own writing, speaking, consulting career. And I've been very successful at it since I left there. So just the idea that introducing you to the right people, to the decision makers, if that makes sense, Absolutely. like the people that can cut the check and that I feel like what I brought Longwood was a perspective of um, honestly a real perspective of what it's like to be black in America. This is the Brandywine Valley. This is a, a town where even though 50% of their town is uh, Mexican American and Mexican immigrant, it's still white, wealthy money, Pennsylvania, old money. I'm talking about mm -hmm. cobblestone houses, right? <laughs> du DuPont. Hello. <laughs> exactly for real old money and something that atlanta we knew money we are new money down here we know it we are flashy and just seeing the way that people operate up there um and, and and showing them how we might operate down here showing them that i may be a horticulturist i may be a longwood fellow but i am black first in this world in this country and then i'm a woman and then i'm these other things so that was something that they had to understand deeply how this literally changed everything for me. It could change things for my community for me to be able to bring this information back. And I think that they saw how valuable and powerful that was. And to their credit, they were incredibly supportive and they still are. They truly are. <clears throat> we have a few minutes left. And so um, I want to get into um, your hip hop sensibility because uh -oh. <laughs> uh, hip hop shapes culture. We all know that, uh, and it has been for a long time. Uh, you're from Atlanta, which arguably is the most influential um, hip hop geographic area over the last 20, 25 years. I mean, Atlanta really changed the hip hop game. So, uh, and you, like I was telling my show, you see Dilla right up there. I got Dilla, I got Tribe on the Wall. So uh, wow. it's is near and dear to me uh, and it, it affects the way I think, it affects the way I, I strategically think, the way I communicate. So for you, knowing that hip hop is such an integral part of your life and your, your worldview, um, how did that love happen? You're from Atlanta. Tell us about how you got exposed to hip hop and just how it, you know, why is it so important to you to this day? Oh my gosh, hip hop is truly um, one of my first loves. My brother I'm the youngest child of three. My brother, who's three years older than me, and I have a sister who's seven years older than me, he was the one that introduced me to hip-hop. And there was this program that came on in the 80s called The Fresh Party with a gentleman named Ryan Cameron, who's still on the air hmm. in Atlanta. And 
I just remember being in my parents' living room and him giving me the stereo headsets and listening to hip hop, which was New York hip hop at the time. Right. And probably the first album, and I, I'm too old and I can't remember all the words, but I knew word for word was Tribe Called Quest, Low End Theory. And I just remember thinking, you just feel it. It's you. You see yourself in it. Um, and the first Atlanta artist I really remember was uh, probably Kilo. Akilo Ali was his name. And it just, it was just the words they were saying, the way they were making them rhyme, the writing. So to me, these were the Shakespeare's. You know, at school, you learn Shakespeare. Thoreau is a great writer. And I was thinking, you can't write better than Q Tip. (laughs) That's just basically how I felt then. Um, And then being in high school during the rise of West Coast rap and just seeing that. And honestly, I think that that was the first time because this is kind of all simultaneously happening with the rise of outcast with Andre 3000 Mm, and of course, big boy, but y'all are just so cool out there. I think that as a Southerner, I saw myself more in West coast rap, the vibe of it. I know it's kind of just, uh, again, mainstream branded gangster rap, but that just wasn't true. It was just the vibe of the West coast. I was like, now that seems more familiar to me than maybe some of the Northern rap and then the southerners started doing their own thing and and took it and ran with it so i don't think i mean hip-hop it's interesting edrick you brought it up because right now i'm working on a um, diversity and inclusion work for the new york botanic garden through um a company called lord that i'm a consultant for mm-hmm. and as we're doing this diversity and inclusion work and new york botanic garden is in the bronx literally the home of hip-hop we know this and i tell them all the time i'm like y'all your community invented hip hop. There is no greater diversity, inclusion, equity, accessibility plan ever created in the world. So if anybody should get this right, it's y'all. And it's true. And I think that that's what hip hop offers the world. Everybody has been included since day one. And it just isn't given enough credit for what its cultural impact has been and will continue to be. It is something that I think shifted the earth and shifted it so quickly people still are having to pick it apart Mm. to understand where it can take us moving forward. Well, April, uh, again, you know, we're we're just about out of time, but um, I just want to thank you for taking the time to to talk to us today, to share your remarkable stories, your career. It's just fascinating the the, the career path you've taken and the influence you continue to have on cultural writ large. So let's talk a little bit more about, so tell us again, uh, the book, when it's going to come out, how people can get in touch with you, see some of your lectures. Tell us about that. Sure. The book is called Conquer the Soil, and it is the untold story of America's gardeners, growers, and um, farmers, I believe is the subtitle. But the book is called Conquer the Soil. That's the most important part. My name is Abra Lee. Um, A-B is in boy, R-A. Last name is Lee, L-E-E. And you can follow me on, um, I'm most active on Instagram. I will say that, at Conquer the Soil, C-O-N. Q-U-E-R-T-H-E-S-O-I-L. And uh, even if you type me into Google, you could see some of my upcoming speaking engagements. So I have one coming up uh, in California at the end of June. I'll be speaking at Poly Hill Arboretum and Martha's Vineyard this summer, Coastal Maine Botanical Garden, and a few other places. But it's all online. Awesome. Awesome. And we'll put uh, some links to your information in our description of the video as well so people can get a hold of you, see some of your lectures, listen to them. Uh, just... Again, I, I, as a, I, I'm a historian, my, my undergrad degree is in history. So for me, the stories you're telling and the, the, the information you're uncovering and just 
the remarkable, remarkable rich history of horticulture and African-Americans is, is desperately needed. And so thank you for, um, oh, but before I go, let me just ask sure. this one question because uh, you said something on one of your lectures that I want to, I want to touch on. Um, you, you can't learn about this stuff from Google. You actually have to get out and talk to people and, oh, yeah. and, and make those connections. So I, I know I'm going to go over a little bit over. So tell us a little bit about that because I thought that was so important. We're such a Google society that the art of primary source material and actually getting to know the research and talking to people is kind of becoming a lost art. Tell us a little bit about that. It is. It, you have to talk to people. And I think that we have this idea, well, if I tell people what I'm doing, they're going to steal from me. But if we're being honest, nothing is new. And I say that because if it weren't for these little old ladies, and I mean black and white little old ladies in the South and men, um, I would not know 90% of this information I know. And when I started talking about these things, my audience was garden clubs, which is generally retired people with time, uh, usually the seniors uh, of our community. And they were the ones that started telling me, well, I'm from South Carolina. And when I was there, there was this little black lady and she had two florist shops and she had her own nursery and it was seven acres. And I was thinking, what? And I couldn't believe it. And these are people that were telling me these things 11 years ago, Edric. So some of them aren't even, even with us any longer. Mm -hmm. And that's why I say you can't get off of Google. And then some of the people they told me about that I might have found on Google, the picture was wrong on Wikipedia. And mm -hmm. I would, they would show me, no, that's not her. This is the real picture. Come to my house and see it. And I was like, this is real. And what, what else we need to know about Google is that Google is still a search engine. It is not us telling our own story. We can tell our story better than Google ever can. So it is to your advantage to speak to the elders in the community sit at their feet, absorb their wisdom, because they are the ones that are the gatekeepers of this. And they will put you on game like nobody in the world can put you on game, for sure. Well, well said. And thank you for sharing that. So uh, as we wrap up, Abra, again, thank you so much. We really appreciate your time. Really appreciate the work that you're doing. And uh, again, when the book comes out, hopefully we can have you on again uh, to continue this dialogue because it's, it, it, we just we didn't even get two feet into the, the depth of all of this. I mean, it's such a, such a rich story. So um, thank you again. Uh, stay safe. Continue blessings to you. And we really appreciate you coming on The Edric Show. Thank you. Thank you so much. I've enjoyed it. This has been such a pleasure and an honor. I really appreciate you, Edric. Thank you. This wraps up episode three of The Edric Show. Thank you for tuning in. Please hit the subscribe button to The Edric Show. Uh, we want to get to double digits. <laughs> We're growing this thing from the ground up. So please hit subscribe. Check us out on Instagram at Edric Show. And The Edric Show uh, is our Facebook page. Thank you. And we'll talk to you again. Bye.